Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Is that a slide? She let it slide. (laughs) Or slide? I think you mean slide. slide. (laughs) I think I mean slide. (laughs) How do you let things slide? Hi there. Welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. Today, we're going to talk about Catherine Bauer leading public housing advocate and educator of urban planners. I'm Nargeri Rivas, sporting pink new glasses in Houston, Texas. Hi there. I'm Jessica Rogers, wearing the same glasses for over a year ago out of Washington, D.C. Hey there. I'm Lizzie Rahr, wearing my new octagonal glasses in San Francisco. Ooh. They're pretty cool, Lizzie. Yeah, they are really cool. It goes with your curly hair. I agree. So. A quick disclaimer. The three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the information we find. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us and send us a comment and we will all continue learning. Great. I'm very excited to discuss Katherine Bauer today. She's really amazing. Oh, really? I mean, I'm sure she is, but we'll see. You'll have to convince us. Yeah. All right. Let's get to it. The time, May 11, 1905. The place, Elizabeth, New Jersey. Catherine Krause Bauer was born. Elizabeth! Great name. Great place to be born. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Her mom, Alberta Krause Bauer, self-educated suffragist. Her dad, New Jersey Chief Highway Engineer, Jacob Bauer. He was responsible for one of the first cloverleaf interchanges in the U.S. and for expanding New Jersey's highway system. Ooh, interesting. I will admit, those cloverleaf interchanges look pretty from the sky. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It's pleasing to the eye and efficient, Mm -hmm. despite taking up a lot of space. (laughs) Yeah. Catherine had two younger siblings, Jacob Lewis Bauer Jr., the youngest, an engineer, and the middle child, 
Elizabeth Bauer Mock, <laughs> apprentice of Frank Lloyd Wright's Taliesin Studio and director of the Department of Architecture and Design at MoMA in New York. Catherine came from a line of very creative people. Yeah, the whole family was connected to the AEC industry, it seems like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. In 1922, Catherine went to Vassar College as an art history and literature major. Then, her junior year, she transferred to Cornell to study architecture as a special independent study. Wait a minute. She went to architecture school? I thought we weren't discussing architects this season. We're not. Catherine called the program a combination of archaeology and fancy watercolor rendering. Ooh. So she went back to Vassar and got her undergraduate degree in 1926. Wait, what? That's some shade. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Lol, no comment. <laughs> Moving on. Lizzie, turns out that we have something in common with Catherine. We do? Yeah, after she graduated, she went on a trip. Oh, did she go on a cross-country road trip like we did? No, she went to Paris. <laughs> that sounds a little bit a different, little different than camping across the U.S., and I bet she was showering every day. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> well, in Paris, Catherine had access to a shower regularly, I'm sure, and she was making connections with famous artists and publishers. She was learning about French culture modern architecture, public housing, and city planning, and she was writing about all of this for different journals. That sounds like so much fun. She really got to immerse herself and document it. I love it. Yeah, it sounds like she was living it up, learning cool things, and working. I think it was during this period that she started becoming a houser. A houser? What's that? Yeah. Hauser was a reformer and activist who influenced policy and practice in order to provide good quality housing, especially for low-income families. Ooh, very interesting. So it's a philosophy or a set of ideals, not a profession? Right. It's not a profession. It's ideals that you have or a way of thinking. Oh, okay. She went back to New York in 1927 and started collaborating with Lewis Mumford. Mumford and Sons? Not that Mumford and Sons, but Lewis Mumford, the writer, architectural critic, historian, and philosopher. He wrote a bunch on different subjects and rolled with a bunch of different people. Writers, artists, architects, city planners, historians. The list goes on and on. Let me tell you, ladies, they didn't just collaborate professionally, if you know what I mean. Ooh, Oh, yeah. They allegedly had a passionate affair and wrote daily long letters for years. Gasp. Okay. Daily long letters? Yeah, that seems like a lot. I know we talked about that with Jane Addams, too, but I guess they didn't have WhatsApp like we have today. That's we message true. each other every we day. We message each other a lot. But they're not yeah. long books either. But then again. I used to message my, my boyfriend a lot. Long messages, a though? Lot. Yes. <laughs> Well, you're married now. I can so. relate. <laughs> Catherine Bauer, I understand. I guess. <laughs> I see. Well, like Jessica said, Lewis was all over the place and he was also a houser. He asked Catherine to return to Europe to do research for articles he was working on and to do her own writing about public housing and urban planning. 
and she was learning directly from architects like Ernst May and Walter Gropius. She was learning that social housing didn't have to be ugly and cheap. It could be good social architecture. Wow. All of the big names in modern architecture circles, too. Yeah, she was hanging out with some heavy hitters. Yeah. Homegirl was getting the full international experience. I also like her comment on social housing. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Catherine came back to the U.S. And in 1932, Lewis introduced Catherine to the Regional Planning Association of America, a group of architects, developers, critics, and housing reformers who were not happy by what they saw as wild metropolitan growth. And she became the executive secretary. That's really cool. I bet she got to be in on a lot of really interesting conversations and ideas. Yeah, she was in the room where it happened. Yeah. (laughs) So Americans were usually like public housing. Hmm, I don't know about that. Catherine knew that. But the U.S. was going through the Great Depression and people needed help. She argued the U.S. government needed to build affordable houses. Yeah, it seems like that time period would be perfect for implementing those kinds of changes. But I can also see how our American ideals might get in the way of that. Makes sense. Those types of policies are a result of the Great Depression and the New Deal Acts. That's right, Jessica. You know where this is going. We'll get to that soon. Oh, I got it. Yeah, just for a little bit. (laughs) So according to Professor Barbara Penner, who's a historian, Catherine believed that democracy depended on providing well-designed, high-quality housing for all citizens. And she argued against the rise of socially homogenous and racially segregated communities. To Catherine, those communities were proof of the insufficient boldness of existing policies and the inability of private markets to address the needs of the poor. Well, if these sound like fighting words now, imagine then. Actually, I don't know if that's more political now or then. Yeah, it always seems like it's cyclical. It's as if history is repeating itself. Yeah. Yeah. Especially this season. Yeah. Right. Well, remember Catherine was doing research for Lewis in Europe? Yeah, for the articles he was working on. Lewis' commission fell through. So her research was just chilling, doing nothing. Hey. And Lewis told her, girl, turn this into a book. <laughs> Fast forward to 1934. Do the little sound effect, Jessica. <laughs> she published Modern Housing, where she wrote about social housing and lessons learned from Europe to apply in the U.S., Hashtag couple goals, significant others helping each other. That's beautiful. Okay, cute. Love a good support system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People call modern housing the most important book on housing of the 20th century. The message was not only about housing. It was about building whole communities, schools, shops, parks. What's interesting is that it wasn't just meant to be a book about research and theories. It was a proposal for basic changes in American housing. It was a form of activism. I have to read this book. I like the idea of this book being about a form of activism, too. Very interesting. Yeah, that's a cool idea to think of it as activism. But it also sounds like it could be used practically, too, like as a guide to urban planning. Yeah. Yeah. 
She started campaigning and she got involved with trade union movements and she helped organize people to fight for direct federal involvement in housing. Yeah. Well, Catherine, through all her work, was on the government's radar. On the radar. And in a good way. New Deal policymakers wanted to boost the economy through housing construction. So they got to talking with Catherine and she started working with them on a housing act. Okay, let's give a brief explanation of the New Deal for our international listeners. Or anyone who doesn't remember what this was. It began with President Roosevelt, right? Right. So the New Deal was a series of programs, public work projects, financial reforms, and regulations that started in the U.S. thanks to President Roosevelt in the 1930s. It was meant to give support to farmers, the unemployed, the youth, and the elderly. It's what started Social Security and a bunch of other things. Yeah. Oh, right. So, yeah, Catherine was organizing people, writing, talking to the new dealers. But that wasn't enough to keep her entertained. She's like, let me do more things. Okay, girl. Of course she was. She was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship to study housing in Europe and the USSR in 1936. And then, years later, she got accused of disloyalty by the Tenney Committee in the 1950s. But who wasn't? I mean, even that lady who did the cookbooks got accused. Julia Child? Yeah, that one. Basically, if you rubbed anyone the wrong way, you were a communist. If you acted a little different or believed in anything radical, you could be a communist. Like Jane Jacobs. Future episode alert. Yeah, like we mentioned last week in the Jane Addams episode, social activism was considered communist. And that's that happened to a lot of social workers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't sound so far away from today. But anyway, back to Catherine. Kicking butt. She worked on bills. She was the primary author of the Housing Act of 1937. But bam! Policymaker. There you go. Pretty big deal for this new deal. (laughs) 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 To get the bill to pass, she had to compromise with real estate lobbyists who were not about laws limiting their commercial practices. So amendments were made that limited public housing to the very poor. But it was better than nothing. And it was a big achievement for her. Hmm. It was a start and a step into a positive direction. Yeah, still a big accomplishment for her. Yeah. After the Housing Act passed, she became the Director of Information and Research for the United States Housing Authority, which was a totally new federal agency. Whoa, that's really cool that they put her in charge of such a new agency, especially a woman at that time. Love to hear that. Yes, that is so impressive. What's next? A movie? Heck yes! (laughs) She worked on the influential documentary, The City that played in the 1939 New York World's Fair. Go to our show notes for the link. It's scary, but in a good way. Ooh, I love a good documentary. Yeah. It's kind of artsy. Love artsy. It's not like... Like, don't fuck with cats. Oh, gosh, no. It's not like that. (laughs) It's not like that. Is it like a Dali? Sort of. A Dali? Like, it's just weird. Weird artsy? Okay. Let me know your thoughts later. Okay. Okay. Catherine was a consultant and advisor to local, state, and national housing and planning agencies during the 1930s to the 1960s. Busy, busy. She did so much. Yeah, jeez. Dude, she advised 
five presidents on housing and urban planning strategies. Like, whoa. (sighs) That is so cool. Yeah, she was in all the rooms where it happened. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1940, Catherine started a position as visiting lecturer at the University of California, Berkeley School of Social Welfare. There, she met and married William Worcester, a famous architect of the Bay Area. Wait, what happened to Lewis Mumford and Sons? (laughs) Okay, then. I guess Lewis just never put a ring on it and Catherine didn't have time for side dudes anymore. Right. Now, a lot of people started calling her Catherine Bauer Worcester and she hated it. In fact, she didn't talk much about her experiences with gender discrimination, though I imagine it happened all the time. For example, one time she got called a handsome blonde with brunette economic ideas as a compliment. And she was like, Haha, so funny. Ugh, I roll. This <laughs> is a whole other level of BS. Yeah, what? What does that even mean? As a blonde, I am offended. As a person with hair, I'm annoyed. <laughs> you are not your hair. <laughs> I wonder if they ever say these things about men. <laughs> this guy was a handsome baldy with luscious salt and pepper ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) So yeah, Catherine let things slide, but she did (laughs) protest that people didn't want to use her maiden name in professional settings. They just refused to like little spoiled babies. (laughs) And people would tell William, What's wrong with her? Tell her to quit her yapping. Finally, he got annoyed and he responded. She has long ago earned the right to being addressed on her own. So STFU. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, sexist pigs. (laughs) Exactly. That's all part of the quote. Damn straight. I'm glad her husband at least stood up for her. Yeah, Yeah, William had her back. I don't know if you've noticed, but this lady was nonstop. Yeah. In 1945, her daughter, Sarah Louise Worcester, a.k.a. Sadie, was born. Isn't it cute? Yeah, that's cute. I really like that. At the same time, Catherine became the first woman appointed to the faculty at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. Come on now. Trailblazer. She's freaking all over the place. I can't keep up. What hasn't she done? In the 1950s, she went back to Berkeley and contributed by joining the Departments of Architecture, Landscape Architecture, City and Regional Planning and Design together to become the College of Environmental Design. Wow. This is a top-ranked school. Yeah. Catherine was also a founding member of the Modern Architectural Research Group, Telesis. They followed other important groups we have mentioned like SIAM and MARS. I can't stop saying wow. Yeah. They believed, and I quote, People and the land make up the environment, which has four distinct parts, a place to live, work, play, and the services, which integrate these and make them operate. These components must be integrated in the community and urban region through rational planning and through the use of modern building technology. Beautiful. I love that. This lady did so much. I feel like I've been talking forever and I only scratched the surface. 
She taught and lectured at many universities. She co-founded the National Committee on the Housing Emergency, served on MoMA's Architectural Advisory Committee, represented UNESCO at the United Nations meetings that led to the founding of the Center of Human Settlements. And there's so much more. We don't even have time to mention. There's more? How did she do all of this? I have no idea. I feel like... I barely have time to do this, <laughs> right? Maybe she had a time turner like Hermione in Harry Potter. That would be very helpful. Yeah. So Catherine and her time turner met Jacqueline Kennedy. <laughs> Jackie O. Jackie O. Jackie O personally asked her to join the Women's Committee for the New Frontiers. People everywhere were inviting her to everything. Listen to this description by Professor Penner. Bauer was a super connector, spanning many worlds, labor, public administration, academia, design, planning, housing. Wow. Clearly, she was just networking her butt off. Mm-hmm. Throughout her entire career, Catherine argued governments and people in places of power had a duty to ensure that all citizens were properly housed in racially integrated communities, and she never stopped believing that. Let me read you this quote from her. It's high time for architects, planners, and builders to accept their large share of responsibility for the dangerous trend toward complete racial and economic segregation. We have been far too exclusively concerned with the techniques for neighborhood planning while ignoring the fact that zoning, restrictive agreements, and large-scale building enterprise, public as well as private, are rapidly pushing us towards a feudal social pattern which is the very antithesis of democracy. Those are some strong statements here. I think this reminds me of today, though, and the role of the citizen architect and how architects should take some sort of responsibility in advocating for these changes that can affect them and recognize that they can be change makers themselves. Totally. This reminds me of our caryatid from last week's episode, Tony Griffin, and how she's trying to create just cities by analyzing and creating strategies to address issues of racial and economic disparity. And her group also works directly with cities. So it's not just private entities. That's right. I love the work that she is doing. And, you know, I have a feeling that this might be where architecture is heading. It's what the students are interested in. Yeah, some students, they still want to work with star architects and learn grasshopper. But we are now seeing that students are interested in this architecture that combats these topics and address social issues. Yes, there's definitely a societal shift going on at the moment, and the ball is rolling in that direction. I mean, even the fact that we're sitting here discussing these issues shows that there's change happening. I would not have been as engaged as I am now a decade ago, and I don't know if it's just maturity or a sign of the times. Maybe it's both. Yeah. Catherine was still teaching, writing, lobbying, advocating, shaking, baking, Time turning. (laughs) When one day, sadly, she fell during a solo hike on Mount Tamalpais in California and passed away on November 21, 1964. She was just 59 years old. What? She died on Mount Tam? 
That's right above my office, by the way. Oh, man. Wow. She took one day off and bam, she died hiking. But also, can we talk about how she was only 59 and she did all of that in 59 years? And not yeah. even like 39 years because right. for the first 20 years, she was... She was growing up. <laughs> I cannot. Crazy. I cannot. <laughs> Guys, there's so much left to accomplish in our lives. True. If she can do it, we can do it. Well, her legacy lives on. She's remembered as a woman who was respected by all the great architects of her time and often invited to share a stage with them in a time that women were not being invited to do any of that. Yeah. Jessica, mm. you can check out a bust of hers at the Robert C. Weaver Federal Buildings Lobby in Washington, D.C. Ooh, yes. I'm adding that to my arc venture list. And Lizzie, you can find a bust of Catherine in the Environmental Design Library in Worcester Hall at UC Berkeley, which, in fact, is being renamed to the Bauer Worcester Hall to shed light that the building was named after the power couple and not just William. Ah, cool. I love that they're renaming it. Yeah. What an incredible woman. She is the epitome of using your voice and your words to make change and the power of networking. Yeah. I mean, dang, this lady did so many things and in not that long. I'm really impressed with how mm -hmm. she networked and worked her way into governmental agencies to try and promote change through legislation also. I couldn't agree more. So did I prove that she's amazing or what? Yeah, I think you did a good job. Yeah. Yeah. Thank She's you. pretty amazing. Yeah. I guess good. we'll we'll concede. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> now, it's time for our karyotid. Please, Lizzie, remind us what this is. Sure thing. A karyotid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. In each episode, we present a karyotid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through her work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. Drum roll, please! Claudia, amico, tudela. Claudia, Claudia. Yeah, yeah. Claudia, amico, tudela is a Peruvian architect and urbanist. She received her bachelor's and master's of architecture from the University of Sheffield and a master's in urbanism and environmental processes from. EAFIT University in Colombia. She's worked in Paris, Senegal, Colombia, and Peru, constantly advocating for the quality and improved nature of public spaces. She's worked in so many countries. I like that she made her mark everywhere she went. Yeah, she's been all over. That's really cool. She's the host of a program on Peruvian TV called Umbrales, where she discusses topics of public spaces and social design. She also teaches at universities in Peru, runs symposiums and workshops, all invested in affordable housing, democratic public spaces, and resilient cities in regards to climate change. Whoa, that's awesome that that's a TV show. I want to watch. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, I definitely would like to watch. We need to ask Netflix to play it. Yes. Some network, really. Let's discuss this quote from her about what architects and urban designers should do. We need to be more political, work with municipalities, debate in the public sector, 
We need to have a great sensibility towards injustice and necessity, and we need to feel a vocation to do something about it, no matter how small it is. We need to assume challenges, face them with confidence, and empower ourselves with humility, learning the value of the small actions and daily things. I think she and Catherine would have been friends. They are advocating for the same thing, it sounds like. Yeah, this definitely sounds like Catherine. I can see why you chose Claudia as the caryatid for this week. I like that they both want to face challenges head on and not try to find workarounds. Yeah, and I really like this quote, too. It's very inspiring. Well, both of these ladies are. They make me want to become a better architect. It's not so much about leaving a pretty building or a house. It's not enough. What are we building? Who are we building for and why? Great questions, Jessica. We really need to do these regular introspections together to move our profession in a more meaningful direction. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Before we sign off, we want to say thank you, CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Catherine and Claudia along with our banter and that you are inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your house representatives and senators. Give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review and this will help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast and on Twitter at shebuildspod. Bye. Ciao. Bye. Hashtag couple goals, significant others helping each other. That's beautiful. Thank you. Love a good support system. I've been fighting the temptation to say, like, if only, <laughs> if only she wasn't the other woman. Oh, wait. <laughs> but they're having an affair? Yeah. Yes. But I he was married. I mean, I knew they were, but I didn't realize he was married. No, he was married. I mean, they're in a relationship, but he is also married. So <laughs> I guess I didn't take that as like, I thought they were just, you know, it's okay. Bumping uglies. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. 
Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> I did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.